I'm excited. I'm really uh, excited to be sharing uh, with you guys this morning. Um, that was just something special when, when the people of God get together around the Word of God. Um, I was listening to uh, an audio book yesterday, and uh, it's a story of, of a man who basically helped, you know, he's still, he's still alive, but he for many years was helping to bring the gospel, the good news about Jesus to China. And he endured like tremendous persecution and tremendous hardship. Uh, he went to prison. He had all these awful things happen to him. And I remember when he was telling the story, one of the things that most touched me is how important, how valuable, uh, how indispensable other Christians were to him in his journey. Like for him to have one Christian in the jail cell of like hundreds was like, that was life to him. It was life-giving. And I was just thinking about it. I'm like, that's, we're, we're not probably going to experience that kind of persecution. Maybe some of us might experience that kind of persecution uh, for, on the count of following Jesus someday. We probably won't. But nevertheless, like this is really important. The body of Christ being together is really important. This is sweet, nourishing fellowship that we get. And so I'm just really excited. The only reason I say that is to say I'm excited to be with you this morning. Uh, you guys are my family. And so, um, so if you're new, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going through a series called Jesus Is. So we're basically working through the gospel of John. And we're seeing who Jesus is through a variety of stories, encounters that Jesus has with people. And we kind of are, are walking with these people as they experience Jesus and learning how Jesus changes absolutely everything about our lives. And so today we're going to continue that by taking a look at John 4. And if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to check out the podcast. Andy preached through like the first chunk of, of, the first chunk of John 4, and I'm going to continue that with the next 10 or 11 verses. Uh, so I want to introduce our time this morning with a quick story. But before I do, I'm going to pray. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for the people that are here. I want to thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us, who was raised for us, who makes all of this possible, makes a people, a new people with a new purpose possible, a new life possible. And I thank you most of all for him. And I pray that we would see him more clearly this morning and we get a, a fresh sense of how beautiful he is, how amazing he is, and how he's worth giving our whole lives to in response to what he's done for us. We love you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, for those of you guys that don't know me, I uh, went to school in San Diego back in 2003. I graduated in 2007, and I love San Diego so much that I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay in San Diego. So I got a job there. It took months to, for me to find a job. I finally got one. My first job out of college was working at a law firm. And I'm not an attorney, so I can't give you any legal advice, um, but uh, I did do research for the attorneys. The attorneys were so busy that they didn't have time to do their own research or their own cases, so I did the research uh, for them a lot of the times, and it involved researching the stock market. So we were doing, we had cases against publicly traded companies, companies that you could buy shares in, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whatever, Delta, companies like that. And so I had to stay on top of the stock market, and in 2007... When I started, I started on September 24th, 2007. I'll never forget. Uh, <laughs> I really didn't like my job. Uh, so I was like counting the days. Uh, so September 24th, 2007, I started. Right around that time, the stock market was at an all-time high. Uh, the, the Dow Jones, which is just like a bunch of stocks put together, was around 14,000. That was like the highest it had ever been. And wouldn't you know it, I get the job. I start working. You know, there's so much optimism, uh, there's like a feeling of prosperity and abundance in the stock market. Things were good. And then I get there, 
and immediately the stock market starts to go like this. And it keeps going down and down and down. And over the next 17 months, the stock market goes from like 14,000 to just over 6,000. So to give that, to put that in perspective, that loss was trillions of dollars, essentially, out of people's retirements. Uh, you know, it, it, it was a devastating time. And so on, in March 2009, the stock market basically bottomed out. And it was like chaos. There was a panic. I remember the attorneys were like, what's happening? Is this going to go down to zero? Are we going to have a job? Are we going to have anything to do? So it was a really interesting time. Um, but looking back on it, that was actually an incredible opportunity. It was an incredible opportunity that I just didn't see. Because if I had invested in the stock market then, for every dollar that I put in, right now I'd have $4. So I'm not great at math, but those are pretty good returns. Those are like once-in-a-lifetime kind of returns. And what did I do? Nothing. I sat on the sidelines. I didn't do anything. I didn't really see the opportunity for what it was. I was kind of distracted. I didn't really care all that much and whatever. The opportunity came and went. And I think, I was thinking about this week, I, I bet that all of us have things like that in life where we had opportunities that we didn't realize and we didn't take them. And we kind of carry some regret uh, about them. And it might be small things. Like, you might wish, like, oh, I wish I'd gone to the dentist more often. I could avoid, like, all this dental work. Or maybe I wish I had traveled before I went to school or before I started having kids. Um, those are my hang-ups, I guess. Um, you might have your own. Uh, I, I have one, uh, I, a very unique one. I, uh, one of my bu- I have a bucket list, things I want to do before I die. And I got to do one uh, two years ago. It was to go to the Home Run Derby. Has anybody ever seen that on TV? It's like glorified batting practice. It's just like, how, fa- how far can you hit this one? Oh, wow. Um, and uh, so I got to go. It was in San Diego two years ago. And I had the choice between two seats. Okay? I had two, two options. The first one was a seat way up high behind home plate, which means that you got a view of the whole field, which is kind of cool. And then the second option I had, same price, second option I had was in this new area called the Landing at Petco Park. Anybody ever been there before? Yeah, one or two people. The landing's basically like, it's so far. It's so far away. It's like past the bleachers. It feels like it's like, in, it might as well be in like, I don't know, North Park. It was so, so far away. It was really far, basically. Did I make the point that it was really far? Super far. And, um, and so I was like, I'll just take the seats where I can get a good view. And wouldn't you know it, by the end of the night, the landing was the spot to be in. There was one guy, his name is Giancarlo Stanton. They call him Bigfoot, which I should have known. If there's a guy, his name is Bigfoot, he's going to probably hit him that far. He hit like 17 or 18 balls in that area. So I had this, this huge hang-up of choosing the wrong ticket and missing a, like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But, so it could be small things like that where you're just like, oh, I just wish I had known that Giancarlo Stanton was going to hit 17 balls into the landing at Petco Park. It could be small things like that, or it could be big things. Uh, I think probably all of us have some like, big things that we wish we had known about in our life. It would have changed the way we acted. Maybe it's a job thing. Maybe an idea you had, a dream, uh, maybe a relationship. And it could have been something like positive or negative. It's like something I wish I had done or something I wish I hadn't done, right? And the big one that I was thinking about, like we've all lost loved ones. I wish I could go back and be with this special person. And this one takes on for me like a, it's especially meaningful because I had um, growing up, I, I, I was born in Puerto Rico. I moved out here to the States when I was nine. And from the time I was nine until I went to college, 
I had a cousin who lived with me. This was my first cousin, but he was basically a brother to us. My mom took him in. He became my brother, essentially. And he lived with, with me for 10 years, and um, he was a very special person in my life. And I'll never forget the day, two years ago, just around two years ago, when um, I got the news that he died unexpectedly at 37, just completely out of the blue. Nobody saw it coming. We had no indication that anything was going to happen. We were just rocked, shocked, stunned. And I wish I knew, like, one day before, a week before, a month before, a year before, anything, it would have changed everything. It would have changed how I approached that relationship. It would have changed my whole life. So my point is this. Time is, time is precious. Opportunities are limited. They're here one day and they're gone. And they don't necessarily come back. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, man, how amazing would it be if we had someone, someone we trusted, tell us, like, hey, when we had an opportunity, like, look up. Look at what you have in front of you. Don't miss this. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a text where Jesus does this for us. He actually says, look up. There's an opportunity of a lifetime in front of you. Don't miss this. So if you have a Bible, let's turn over to John 4. 31 to 42. If you don't, we'll have the the verses up on the screen. And so just for a little bit of context, especially if you weren't here uh, last week, um, Jesus, in this this passage, we meet up with Jesus, who has just turned a Samaritan woman's world upside down. So this woman, her life was characterized by condemnation from the religious community because of her sinful lifestyle, and she was dissatisfied with life too. And so she just met Jesus. And what did she discover? She discovered that Jesus did not reject her, but loved her. Jesus affirmed her dignity and worth. And he offered to satisfy the longings of her soul. And so she's just like blown away by Jesus. And so she's like, I gotta go. And so she runs off into the village. And she actually runs off to tell everyone in the village. So at this point in the story, we're basically, she's in the village. And then Jesus' disciples who went out to get snacks for Jesus are now coming back to connect with Jesus. And they're surprised, like, why was he talking to that woman? Because back then, that's not something you did. But Jesus didn't seem to care about the cultural conventions. He seemed to just love people. So that's where we're on the story. Let's pick it up. Jesus is now talking with his followers, with his disciples, with his friends. Verse 31. Meanwhile, uh, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. You know, it was hot. Jesus was tired. They didn't want him to pass out. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I love this. The disciples are so slow to pick up on clues. And if we're honest, we're like, yeah, we can resonate with that. What's on the disciples' minds? What's probably on your minds right now? Food. Yum-yums. Some of you are like, mmm, yeah, I'm tracking with the disciples. I'm right there with you. Here's the thing, though. The disciples are not tracking with Jesus at all. They're confused. So what's going on? Okay, Jesus does this all the time. He's such an amazing communicator. Uh, He doesn't just use boring. He's not just, like, shouting out facts. Like, he's using insightful, vivid metaphors to point. You know, he takes what's in front of him, everyday realities, and turns them into metaphors for spiritual realities so that we can understand what he's saying. He's been doing this this whole book, if you've been with us. He did it with light and darkness, good and evil. He does this with sight and blindness. It's like 
do we see the realities of God? Do we understand who God is? We either, we either do or we don't. We either see or we don't see. And he just did this, if you were here last week, with thirst and with water. He's talking about soul satisfaction and longings. He uses water and thirst for that. And now, we're talking food. And in a second, he's going to talk agriculture. So he's going to use a bunch of metaphors over the next few verses. If you can't follow along, don't worry. I didn't either. The first few times I read this. So I'm going to read it, and we're going to unpack it later, okay? So verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, look around, and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus is saying, don't miss this. Big opportunity here. Pay attention. This is what Jesus is saying. Wake up. Look up. Verse 39. What's the opportunity? Verse 39, we see it. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So this woman went back to the town and told them about the interaction she had with Jesus. And this was a woman who had a pretty, like, checkered past. And Jesus knew all about it, even though he had never met her before. So she, she was like, he told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? That's how, that was her call for people to come to Jesus. And so now they're coming. Verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it our, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So we see Jesus, all he was doing was sitting by a well, and all of a sudden, a whole town is changed forever through one conversation, and then one person being impacted, and then going back to their community and saying, is this, could this be the Christ? The Samaritan people experienced Jesus for themselves and everything changed for them. These were outcasts. These were considered half-breed people. They were looked down on by the religious and Jesus went to them, loved them. And he actually changed his plans. Did you catch what, what he did? They asked him to stay and he was like, okay. That's a flexibility, right? That's pretty cool. When there's opportunities, Jesus was flexible. He changed his plan. If we want to be like Jesus, like the, point, the whole point of why we're here, we want to learn to be like Jesus. So we've got to learn these things from Jesus. When we have opportunities in front of us, like we've got to flex, change directions if we have to, for the sake of the opportunities that are in front of us. It could change a life or a community. So here are my three points for today. Where are we going? My three points are pretty simple. Number one, Jesus' priority. Two, Jesus' plan, and three, Jesus' pay. So we're going to look at Jesus' priority, his plan, and his pay. You guys with me? Cool. All right. So num number one, Jesus' priority. What was Jesus' life priority? What was his life all about? What was he focused on? What was the thing that captivated his heart and his mind? What drove him? Okay, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. Okay, he doesn't necessarily explicitly define it in these verses. We can kind of read through the lines and see what's happening. But he does uh, later in John 6. He explains exactly what God's will and work is. And so just for like, as an aside, uh, in the early days when people would hear this gospel, they would sit down and hear it read from start to finish. That's how it was. People didn't have like Bibles, you know, necessarily around their house. You would hear it. We'd gather together. People would gather together to hear it. And so they would hear chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. So they would get this. So I'm going to, we'll fast forward to John 6, verses 39 to 40, to read. What, so what's, Jesus, what's God's will and work that Jesus finds so irresistible and so satisfying that he risked going to Samaria, which was enemy territory, and talk to a woman of questionable moral standing, which would have caused him insults and trouble with the religious people. So John 6, 39, 40, we find out. This is what it says. It says, and this is the will of him who sent me. So this is Jesus talking about God his Father in heaven. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that everyone is really important. There's no, uh, there's no socioeconomic, racial, it's everybody. It's Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews did not like each other. Jesus came after both. It's everyone. It's all people. So Jesus, God said Jesus in the world to save us. Jesus actually came on a rescue mission. Uh, who here has seen Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, about half of the room. Okay. Saving Private Ryan is kind of a, it's, it's bloody, it's brutal, but it's kind of a fitting metaphor for the work of Jesus. Um, follow me here for a second. So uh, if you've never seen it, Saving Private Ryan, what's it about? It's set in World War II. Okay, so this great war. And there's four brothers that go to war. Three of them die. There's one left, and he's deep in enemy territory somewhere. This isn't like today where you could probably find him in a second. This is 19-whatever, 40-something. A little bit different. It's not as easy to find someone. This is like finding a needle in a haystack. So Tom Hanks, his character, Captain Miller, he is sent by his commanding officer to save Private Ryan, okay, which is Matt Damon's character. And he, he's sent to save him out of death and destruction to bring him to safety, to bring him home. Okay, this is Captain Miller's food to save Private Ryan. That's what he's there for. That's what keeps him going. That's what motivates him. That's what, what fuels him. And ultimately, Captain Miller, basically, he endures unspeakable hardship, suffering, and ultimately, he gives his life to save Private Ryan and finish the work that he was given to do. Okay, that's very much like what Jesus does for us, actually. Just like Captain Miller gives up his life to save Private Ryan, so Jesus gives up his life to rescue and redeem you and me, to rescue and redeem the world, which is a war zone, a war zone caused by sin and death and destruction. Jesus came on a mission to rescue us, to save us. How was this work actually accomplished? So again, if we were sitting together going through the Gospel of John, we'd hit you know, chapter 4, chapter 6, and then towards the end we'd hit chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 30, is very telling. This is Jesus on the cross. He's bloodied. He's bruised. What are the famous words that he says from the cross? It is 
finished. And what was finished? The work the Father gave him to do. When he gave up his last. Just like Captain Miller, his work was finished when he laid down his life for Private Ryan. So the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the author of life, the Messiah, died for you and me and the people of the world, and it's what he wanted most to do. Jesus lived to die for you. Jesus lived to die for you. What does this mean? There's a bunch of different ways we can go. But one of the things I was thinking about this week for our church is just means this, one thing. It means that even in our worst moments, okay? So when you're aware of your brokenness, your own sinfulness, the hurts that you're carrying, your disappointments in life, your anxiety, your preoccupations, your busyness, your kind of selfish ambitions to make a name for yourself, to be a big deal, your self-protection, your self-focus, in some cases, your self-loathing, in other cases, maybe you're like your codependence on someone else or other people, your independence from people, I don't need people, your cynicism, your depression, your self-righteousness, all this stuff, ungodliness, whatever it is, no matter what it is, you're loved. And forgiveness is yours. And new life is yours if you embrace Jesus. That's what this means, in a sense. And hopefully this is good news for you. That means that Jesus meets you in the worst spots of your life, in the worst parts of your life, the worst hurts, the worst sin. He comes to give life and water because we're thirsty. And like Tom opened that idea of like, come and drink. Jesus comes to give living water to people. That's what the Samaritan woman experienced. She was thirsty. So Jesus offered her, he offered her living water and she had a drink and she's like, I'm in, I'm done. I can't go back. So here's my first point. Jesus' priority. What, what was his priority? Jesus lived to die for you. Jesus lived to die for you and for me and for the world. Okay. So my second point, Jesus' plan. Jesus' plan. Okay, so he didn't just die for you and me. He died for the sins of the world, right? But how does this good news actually reach a lost and hurting world? In verses 35 to 38, Jesus talks about a lot of stuff. Okay, he talks about the harvest. He talks about fields. He talks about sowing and reaping. I don't know about you. I've never been in agriculture. So the, the sowing and the reaping and the seed, none of that stuff really connects with me. Uh, I did for them because this was an agric- you know, agrarian culture, but it, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. So I had to do some work uh, to really get my mind, wrap my mind around what he's talking about. So here's, I'm going to define some terms because I think this is helpful before I, I'm going to give you my paraphrase too of this, of these verses. Uh, so get ready for that. Um, the Herrick Berger version of the Bible. So Jesus uses the fields and the harvest. And so the fields and the harvest are people who are ready to believe in Jesus. Okay, very simple. It's just people who are ready to believe in Jesus. And the sowers and the reapers are people in the kingdom of God who are working to bring in the harvest, who are working to bring people in. They're working to bring in a crop of believers. Okay, and then Jesus talks about time periods. Did you notice that? He's like four months until the harvest. He's talking about time. He also talks about labor. So there's work, okay? And they knew, people knew, like, just as an example, um, uh, Halloween is coming up in however long, uh, two months. And um, let's say you wanted a pumpkin. I just discovered this this week. Let's say I wanted a pumpkin and I didn't want to buy it. 
Why, why I would want to just buy it, I don't know. But let's say I did it. Uh, so apparently you need, like, seeds, um, and you got to put them in the ground. And you can't just put it in the ground today and expect a pumpkin tomorrow. There's actually a lag of time, right? I, I got confirmation from my, my Gigi, Heather's grandma. She confirmed this for me. She lives in Valley Center. She farms and stuff. Um, so this is, I'm pretty sure this is true. If it's not, you can correct me later. So I think this is what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Let's take all this together. Okay, so his disciples are freaking out about food, and Jesus responds to them. So this is the, the JBV, the Herrick Berger version of the Bible. This is what Jesus is saying. Guys, his disciples, forget about the tilapia sticks. I don't care. My food is to do what God wants me to do, okay? Which is to save the people he loves so very much. And look up, look up. Look at, look at the harvest coming in. You didn't put any seeds in the ground here in Samaria. Others have, and their work is paying off. Look at them come in. The harvest of souls is already coming in, and guess what? It's huge, huge. Now let's gather in these precious people. Let's bring them into God's kingdom. Let's do this. Come on. It's a call to act. It's a call for action. Does that make sense? Cool. I worked really hard on that (laughs) translation this week. Jesus is saying, look up. See what's in front of you. Don't miss this. And he's saying the same thing to us today. Okay, I remember uh, when I was younger, I really disliked soccer. Uh, really, I disliked the idea of it. It was more the idea than the reality. And I had several friends in college that tried to convince me to give soccer a chance, and I refused, just flat out. Nah, I'm okay. I was very, very happy with just baseball. Um, I didn't need soccer in my life. And then, then I studied abroad in 2006. Uh, I went to Madrid, which is in Spain. And I spent two weeks traveling around Europe before my semester started. So I flew into Amsterdam got on a bus with a bunch of people I did not know, which introverted dream, and we stopped at cities all along the way. We stopped in Toulouse, we stopped, we stopped in France and different places. And finally, the day, the day came when we arrived in Spain, and I could get off this bus, which I was really excited about. And where do they drop us off in Madrid? They drop us off in front, in the parking lot of the Santiago Bernabeu. Does anybody know what that is? It's Real Madrid's stadium. Does everybody know who Real Madrid is or what Real Madrid is? It's the biggest club in the world, arguably. Football. Well, Tom, the biggest club in the world, okay? And they dropped me off in the parking lot, okay? And then I'd been, okay, so I had these buddies in college who were always telling me, you got to start walking soccer, you got you to gotta do this. They all like soccer, and I was like, I'm not interested. I met a friend on the bus. His name is Colin. He was a part of that crew. I just hadn't met him yet. He's from San Diego, from my same school. Huge soccer fan, okay? And he tried to convince me during this time when we're, like, traveling around Europe. We stopped in Paris for a couple of days, and he went to this, this stadium where PSG plays. Anybody know where that is? PSG is, like, a big, the biggest club in soccer, in French soccer. He's like, you got to come to this. And I was like, I'm not interested. So, finally, I think he just was fed up. We got off the bus. We stayed in front of the stadium. He's like, dude... Open your eyes. 
So we're, we're standing in front of this huge stadium, and he's like, look at that stadium. It fills completely with people, and it fills with magic. <laughs> There's a game tomorrow. I'm going. You're coming with me. That's what he said, and I'm like, okay. All right, fine. He's going to keep bothering me about this if I don't go. We're only going to be here for six months. There's probably 40 games left in the season. So I went. I went to a soccer game. I had no idea what soccer was even about. I walked in, and I'm like, oh, there's this bald guy running around. Um, he looks really old like, compared to, by the way, it's nothing, it's, it's nothing, I'm going, I'm losing my hair. It's not a bald guy thing. It's just like he stood out to me because he just looked older. And, but I was like, but he's pretty good. He's like doing these kicks. It turns out to be Zinedine Zidane, who's like one of the top three players of all time, um, was playing that day. And anyway, I get into the stadium. I see these players. I, I hear the, the crowd, the whistles. There's like a constant whistling in soccer. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's like, just like a low drone. And then it's just like, ah, it just picks up. And I saw these players. We were really high. So I got to see like all the action from up top. And I saw them working together, moving the ball around. There's, there's strategy clearly. They're, they're gifted technically. Um, they have vision for what could possibly happen if they put the ball right here. There's all these near misses, the crowd going like, ooh, you know, like, and, ah. And then, like, at the, you know, 80th minute, the rush of the crowd finally, like, culminates on a goal, and everybody loses it. Goal! You know, they, everybody loses it. And so I went to one game, and I was hooked. I was like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. <laughs> so I was totally antagonistic to the game of soccer before. And then... Through the work, through the labor of my friends, I went and I was like, ah, this is incredible. Now I've got to start bringing people with me. I'm going to eat baguettes for the rest of the semester so I can afford these games. And so Colin, my buddy, his words basically ushered me in. I loved it. And then I started telling other people about it because I wanted them to come and love it. And before I knew it, I, I brought in a harvest of American soccer fans to Real Madrid. You're welcome, Madrid. And actually, Colin and I worked together along with others. It wasn't just me. And this is, honestly, you're like, why is he talking about soccer? Who cares? You, you, you might not like soccer. You might be where I was. Like, try it sometime. Okay, but, but here's the reason, my point. There is a point to this. Uh, this is not at all unlike what Jesus wants us to do. Okay, Jesus' plan is for us to bring in the harvest together, to experience his goodness, and to bring other people to him. Self. That's my second point. If you're taking notes, Jesus' plan is, to, is for us to bring in the harvest together. Kind of like Colin and I and my friends worked on bringing in a harvest. It's kind of like that. Okay, but as I say this, there's a few things I need to address that I want to address quickly, hopefully quickly. So uh, if you're here and you're in the room and you would not necessarily identify as a disciple of Jesus, uh, you, you're not really sure, um, I want you to know that we're really glad that you're here. And one thing that might be going through your mind, you might feel a little different and uncomfortable right now because you might feel like, oh, so am I a project now to Christians? And I would say, well, it depends. Depends on how you define project. If by project you mean that I and we share Jesus with you to try to score brownie points with God to improve our standing with him, then I would say, no. You're not a project. You're in no way a project because we don't go into the harvest to improve our standing with God. Our standing with God is based on the cross, what Jesus did for us, not our performance. So we don't need to earn anything. So in that sense, you are not a project. 
And if you feel like a Christian is treating you like a project, if I can give you a little advice here, um, if you'll indulge me, um, maybe they're being a little pushy. Do me a favor. Uh, turn to that dear brother or sister and say to them, hey, I'm feeling kind of pushed here. Kind of like a project. You're not, you're not going into the harvest to try to improve your standing with God, are you? <laughs> your standing with God is based on Jesus' cross, not your performance. So relax. Have a seat. Drink some water. I'll get you some coffee. Decaf. You know? So that's a little tip for you for free. Um, if you do that, by the way, come back and t- find me and let me know how that goes. Um, so, but, so you're not a project in the, the negative sense of we're not using you to get something from God. But here's the thing. You are a project in a different sense. Okay, before you, before you get offended, here's what I want to say. We're all part of the project of God because he's restoring the creation through Jesus. We all need Jesus. We all need the cross. It's not like you need Jesus more than I do. I need Jesus just as much as you do. I'm not better. You're not worse, but you're also not better. You need Jesus too. That makes sense? Good. Good. Just on the first cup of coffee right now. I think all the, everything's firing properly now. So the good news is that Jesus is available to all of us, right? But here's the thing, and this is a very important part. We all need help to find him. Nobody just finds Jesus apart from the help of other people. In very rare cases, it happens. Okay? And that's, that's in like, we're talking about like in countries where Jesus cannot be preached because it's illegal, you know, certain Muslim countries, and then people have dreams about Jesus, and they become Christians through those dreams. You don't have to believe that, by the way. If you don't want to, it's fine. But I'm just letting you know the ordinary way of things is Jesus sends people to help us find him. That's just the way he prefers to do it. That's his preferred method. So if you're not a Christian in this room, I want you to know that you're, you're welcomed here, you're loved, and you need the Christians that God has put in your life to help you find Jesus. Just the reality. But here's the thing. We've all needed that. Okay? So don't, and, and we don't regret finding him, and we don't think you'll regret finding him either. Okay, so now secondly, to the Christians in the room, there's some things I want to remind you of that I think are really important. Okay? Number one, unity. Something that we see in this passage is that we're a team. One team, one people, one united front, part of one kingdom, serving one Lord, one God, with one purpose. And when that happens, we get to rejoice together, no matter what role you played, okay? Some of you might sow seeds for years faithfully, and you might not see fruit. You may pray for people for years. Don't think that you've wasted your time. You have not. There are people that worked in Samaria before Jesus got there, potentially John the Baptist. They didn't necessarily see the harvest, but Jesus said, we rejoice with them. We rejoice together. Okay, so your work, your work isn't wasted. On the flip side, don't get too excited about yourself. Okay, you might reap a harvest quite unexpectedly. You share the gospel one time, you have one conversation, you sneeze and someone's like, ah, what do I do to be saved? You know? Don't think it's all you. Others have labored. The very least, our God and Father has labored, Okay. Uh, you know, Paul, Paul, whatever, I forget. I should have written this verse down. Paul worked, Apollos worked, God gave the growth, okay? It's God who's, he's really the one who's laboring. And we can just enter into his labor and the labor of other people. So you can rejoice and give God thanks for the work that he's done before. 
Okay, what does this mean? There's no room for ego in the kingdom. There's no room for pride. No need to be get puffed up around your gift or what you bring. You're not that important. Sorry. You aren't. I'm not that important. But I could just... Somebody else would be up here. Somebody, somebody, some of you in here, you're, if you're honest, you want to. You're like, I wish I was preaching. Preach better than this guy. You probably can. Okay, so there's no room for pride in the kingdom. There's no ego. It's just simply not about you. It's about the harvest. Okay, it's about us working together to bring people to Jesus, okay? So we should work towards unity and how we relate to each other in the church. And even with other churches who are harvesting in the area, there's a million and a half churches in Temecula. And sometimes people are going to come to experience Jesus who have been through the doors of other churches. That's okay. We get to rejoice together. Number two, that's unity, diversity. So we're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. That means some of you in this room, what are you? Your hand. Others of you are a foot. Those of you are eyes. Others of you are ears. You are all different, and everyone, every single one of you matters. Okay, everything you do matters for the harvest. Your gifts matter. You engaging with other people matters. Okay, when it comes to someone becoming a new person in Christ, receiving Jesus, believing in him, every conversation that you have or that we have, every act of service, every prayer, every sermon Every chair that's set out for the person to sit in to hear the sermon. Every time someone's at their greeting. Every time someone opens up their home. Every time someone volunteers serving kids. And this, might, this one probably is like times five. All of it's working together to bring people to Jesus. Okay, so we can celebrate together the contributions that each of you make. Some of you are great at throwing parties. Others of you are great servants. Others of you are great at creating a warm, welcoming space. Others of you are tender and empathetic and can cry with people. Others are extremely generous. Others are effective leaders. And there's a lot more gifts in this room. Okay? The point is, if we're using them, we're, we're using our gifts to help bring in a harvest. Nobody's better than anybody else, but all, all the contributions matter. Because God uses them. It's like he doesn't need us, but he chooses to. He welcomes us in. It's really cool, actually. He could just give everybody dreams, and everybody would believe in Jesus, but he doesn't choose to do that. He'd rather work through you, through your gift. And I'll explain why in a second. The last thing I want to say real quick is effectiveness to the Christians in the room. This is important. There's an abundance and a prosperity in the new age that Jesus is ushered in. This was promised by the prophets. It's in Amos. And so... Jesus, what does that mean? It means that Jesus can do whatever he wants. He can save a lot of people at once if he wants to. He can save a whole town in a moment. Okay? In Acts, we see thousands of people believe in Jesus. And I think it took one sermon, one day. So we, can, we don't have to lose hope. We don't have to have like a negative view of the world or of people or of what's happening. We can go into the harvest with an eagerness, an expectation that God's going to do things. Do our prayers reflect that? Do our lives reflect that optimism, the new age that we're living in? Abundance and prosperity. Like the stock market was abundant and prosperous, like God's kingdom is abundant and prosperous. The blood of Jesus has completely changed the game so we can go into the harvest eagerly. So my second point is this. Jesus' plan is for us to bring in the harvest together, working together. Okay, last of this, this is, this is a shorter point. Jesus' pay this is my third point and last point. 
Jesus' pay. So Jesus lived to die for us, right? And for the world. And his plan is for us to, hey, you know, look up. Look up and see what the opportunity we have in bringing the harvest together. But that's not all that this text tells us. This text tells us more. He's going to give us wages. He will pay us. And his pay is actually far better than what we deserve. Okay, verse 36. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Okay, so what does this mean? Like I said earlier, the pay is not earning God's love. It's never earning God's love. God's love is a free gift because of the cross. So we're not earning anything from God. When we go into the harvest, the pay is the joy of seeing people brought into God's family. The pay is the joy of seeing people brought into God's family. Okay, think about like, do you guys hear about the boys who were trapped in a cave, the soccer team in Thailand, I think it was? Uh, they had rescuers who came and saved them, right? Their rescuers, they saved those boys and got the joy of seeing them reunited with their families. That was the pay, the real pay, the joy. Okay, in the harvest, it's very similar for us. You may work, and your pay may not come in right away. However, we will get salvation one day, and then we'll see the fruit of our work. We're not going to be bummed about it. Okay, Paul writes in First Thessalonians 2.19-20, to What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? My crop, you're a glory and our joy. Yeah. Do you want that? Do you want that when you stand before Jesus to have a crop to show him? Bet you do. And one day when we're with Jesus, we won't be bummed that we gave ourselves to the harvest. We won't. We're going to rejoice, and we're going to get to see people come in, and that's the pay. So my third point, which again, it's a short one, Jesus' pay is the joy of seeing people brought into God's family. We get to enter into that joy. So let's recap. Let's recap. Jesus lived to die for us. He wants us to look up, see the opportunities that we have in front of us, walk into the harvest with optimism and effort. Okay, God's opposed to earning his love, but he's not opposed to us working hard and expending effort and working together to bring in a harvest. And then Jesus' pay is the joy of seeing people brought into the family of God. So there's joy now. Maybe it's less joy now, but one day you're going to have a lot of joy. You're never going to be bummed for this effort. And I just want to ask the question, like, are you open to this new reality? Are you thinking in these categories? Is this your mindset as you head into your workplace, as you head into your sphere of influence, your school or whatever? Jesus' food, we learned, was to do God's will. That's what led him into the harvest. That's what motivated him, fueled him. What are you hungry for? Is it to do God's will? Or is it something else? Honestly, think about this. If you're not sure, I have some questions that have been helpful to me that I'll share. Who do you adore way too much? What do you obsess about? What do you fantasize about? What are you terrified of losing? What do you need to live? What can you not live without? These questions help us to see what our food is.
Now, I find that if I'm honest, most of the time my default mode is that I live to secure the love and affection from other people. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want to be affirmed. I want to be valued, recognized, respected, typically through what I do or what I know. So, for me, I found that going into the harvest is risky because there's always a fear of what in the harvest? Rejection. Being made fun of, being mocked, being regarded as stupid. Oh, you actually believe that? Maybe there's more of a fear in North Park than it is here for me. But still, it's still possible anywhere. You could be regarded as stupid. You could be regarded as an extremist. Like, oh, you actually, tone it down, pal. You know? Fear can keep me from going into the joyful harvest. And I suspect that I'm not alone in this. You know, if you're honest, there's a decent chance at least some of what I'm saying is resonating with you today. Might be a little bit different for you. So I want to end really with, with this thought. Like, what might keep you from going into the harvest? What might keep you from going into the harvest? And I want to quickly cover a few possibilities before I wrap up. Number one, if you're like me, you have a fear, potential fear of rejection. And the reality is people will reject you and me at times. It's just going to happen. But here's the good news. Jesus never will. Jesus will never reject you. And so if you, if you can imagine a day, a time in your life when Jesus' love and acceptance were enough for you, what would you be afraid of? Probably nothing. You might also fear, uh, suffer from a fear of failure. And the, the truth is, like, you're going to fail sometimes. Fail. But if you help just one person in some way believe in Jesus, if you help one person pass from death to life, from darkness to light, from being an enemy of God to a son or a daughter of God, wouldn't that alone be worth a lifetime of failure? And there really isn't failure other than just never trying. And even with that, your failure is forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So it doesn't define you. You're not defined by failure, but why would you want to miss the harvest? For what? Number three, it's maybe just you feel like you have a lack of knowledge. Maybe you're just like, I don't know enough. I don't know enough Bible. I'm just, I'm unprepared. I'm ill-equipped. And basically, I want to just remind you, like, the woman of the, at the well knew nothing. Nothing. You may not know this, but the Samaritans, their Bible was just the first five books of the Bible. They cut out the prophets altogether. They cut out a lot of the Bible. They had a defective Bible. They had an incomplete Bible. And she brings in a harvest. A harvest, baby, <laughs> with no Bible. Okay? She knew nothing. And yet, look at what she did. She brought in a harvest. You might feel like, oh, I'm just too messed up. I'm too stained by sin. I don't have any good relationships. This woman was a social outcast. You might feel like, I'm not there yet, whatever that means. She wasn't. Maybe you're like, I'm a bottomless pit of problems. This woman went to the well in the middle of the day in 140 degrees scorching heat or whatever it was. Why? To avoid people because she had problems. Jesus doesn't care about your problems. He does. Let me rephrase that. He cares about your problems, but he will not let your problems stop you or define you from getting into the harvest. He cares deeply about them. That's why he died for them. So don't quote that. Don't tweet that. Okay, 
You might feel like, I have religious baggage. I've got a weird religious upbringing. This one was a Samaritan, a half-breed, according to the, the religious authorities. It doesn't matter. Maybe you feel weak. I'm not gifted enough. Wrong. I mean, right, but wrong. You have the Holy Spirit if you believe in Jesus. You are empowered. How much more power could you want? Here's the last one I'll finish. I'm just, I'm going. Apathy. Big one. If you're honest, you might just not care right now. You might just not care that much about Jesus right now. If we're talking food, you might just be binging on Cheez-Its. Which are like, mmm, this is delicious. And then you're hungry five minutes later. And you might feel, maybe you feel like, I'm okay with that. Thank you very much. I have a word for you. You ready? Jesus isn't apathetic about you. His thought of a satisfying, delicious meal, a steak dinner, is one that's spent with you, enjoying your company, delighting in you, and vice versa, satisfying your heart. He is not apathetic towards you. Whenever you're ready to put down the Cheez-Its, Jesus has got a steak dinner ready for you, or whatever, a mushroom burger, whatever your thing is. He won't be disinterested. He's not going to be scornful. He'll be delighted. Whatever your thing is, whatever your hang-up is, it's going to keep you from going into the harvest. I just want you to know the gospel is the solution. Believing in Jesus is the solution. The gospel saves us and sends us into the harvest. So in my notes it says, I want to call the band up. They're already up. And I want to encourage you to talk to God and listen to him during this worship time. I really get the sense he's going to help anybody that's honest about wanting to grow in this who's honest about, I struggle to enter the harvest, but I want to. I think it's worth it. I think he wants to work through barriers today. So I encourage you to to engage with him, listen to him, and ask him, what might hold me back? And can you help me, please? I think the Father will be pleased to answer those prayers. Let's sing to him.